Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Ruth chapter 2, and we're going to close out that passage today as we're waking our summer series through this book, this redemption story. As we consider the context of Ruth in a world in which it's very hostile to the things of God, of Yahweh, Israel, as we know, has fallen away. They are living and doing that which is right in their own eyes. We understand that we too today live in a world that's enslaved by sin, right? Our society, I'm sure you have noticed, the media, our politicians, influence, and others, are, are, are pushing this, but our society is divided into groups and sections, dividing ourselves into them and us. We no longer tolerate the opinions and beliefs of others. To disagree with someone is to hate them, is to go uh, more than just say, I disagree, but it's to seek their cancellation. We cancel first and then ignore any debate over the issues that we seem to struggle with. In the church, it seems that we are no different from the world. However, God has given us a different mandate and mission than that of those that are in the world. We are called to love, to forgive, to grant mercy, to grant grace, and to be given and 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 be uh, uh, and to give even to those who mean us harm or work to silence our voices or deny our rights. Yet in spite of all those threats and all that is going on in the world, you and I are, as Christians are called to demonstrate the goodness and kindness of God. Let me say that again. In this world, despite the circumstances, despite the consequences of living a Christian life, we are still called to demonstrate the goodness and kindness of God in a world that is very, very hostile to our faith. And one of the ways we can do that is through hospitality. Hence why the title of this message today is Unexpected Hospitality as we look at Ruth. In her book, the gospel comes with a house key, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she was once a lesbian. She was a, a liberal uh, English teacher, literature teacher in the high realms of, of, uh, of New York. Uh, she came to know the Christ, know Christ, not through just necessarily the preaching of God's word, so to speak, but through hospitality is where she first heard the word of God and understood what it means that God is good. She writes this. She writes radically ordinary hospitality. It seems odd, right? Radically, but also ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label, which you know, we live in a world in which that's very much, right? Identity politics. You have to meet this type of quota, and that's how we see you. However, those that are Christians, she writes, see God's image reflected in the eye of every human being on earth. They know they are like meth addicts, 
and sex trade workers. They take their own sins seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. She goes on to write that those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. It's an interesting concept. And what we're going to see as we continue in this passage is how Boaz uses some unexpected hospitality to demonstrate and display the goodness and kindness of God. Last week, we were introduced to Boaz, the hero of the story. Now, as I say the hero of the story, I'm speaking humanly speaking. Obviously, we know the hero of the story is truly Christ. But in here, Boaz stands in for that. He's the hero of the story who will eventually become Ruth's husband and the great-grandfather of King David. The Holy Spirit describes Boaz as a worthy man, a man worth emulating who displays the kindness and the grace and the mercy of Yahweh in his his interactions with his employees and Ruth. And so we encourage you last week to be men men like Boaz and for you to pray for your husband to be a Boaz and for your future husband to be a Boaz. But as we come into today's passage, we continue in the fields of Boaz as the narrator relates the surprising generosity and kindness of Boaz as he offers Ruth both provision and protection. So with that, we're going to read Ruth chapter 2, verse 14 to start off. It will be here on the screen, but again, I want to bring you to your, to, to your Bible. The narrator tells us, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Father, I pray that you just be with us this morning as we consider this passage of Ruth. Again, we're reading a story. Stories are always much more fun to read many times than doctrine. It's a little bit easier for us to understand. But yet, in here, we are finding doctrine. We are finding truths. We are finding things that are profitable for us here today. And so I pray that you help us as we dig in, do the work of pulling it out and then interpreting it and then applying it to our lives for your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we're still in the fields of Boaz. So as we left last week, Boaz got up early in the morning and she went into fields and we looked at the, the prospect of gleaning what it was and how those that did have no income or were poor or maybe widows, they would go in the fields and as, as the reapers were walking through the fields, they would, uh, you know, accidentally or not thinking, they would drop some pieces of barley, corn, whatever it is that they're doing. And so then those were not to go be back and picked up, but were to be left for those who had nothing. This is Ruth and Naomi's position. They have nothing. They are destitute. They have found a place to shelter, but now they're thinking, what are we going to eat? Ruth says, you know what? I'll get up and I'll just go to one of the fields and I'll just start picking up. She finds herself in the field of Boaz, which as we saw was a good fortune, not just a chance encounter, but a God-ordained moment to continue the story 
of the redemption. So here we are in verse 14. We are now back still in the fields. It is the same day. And then lunchtime has finally arrived. That's where we're at. We're at lunchtime. It's noon. This is a scene that's very familiar to all of us. We get up early, right? In the morning, we prepare for the day. We pack a lunch and then head to work. And after working all morning, lunchtime finally arrives. And I wanted to say a little story about Emily at this time, but I will not. Ask me later and I'll tell you. It's a cute story about Emily and lunchtime. Finally, I just made a friend. Finally, a break in our day and a moment, and, 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 and a moment to rest, to relax, and refresh after our morning work before we have to go back to it again. Lunchtime is just that oasis in the day. One of the things I always look forward when I wake up is two things. Oh, I get lunch today, and I also get to take a nap today. Those are two successful days for me. You can tell I'm getting a little bit older. But the cycle repeats each day of our work week, right? We, we get up, we go to lunch, we either go out to lunch or we bring a lunch, so on and so forth, however your day. But, but this is a scene that's very familiar to us. You, you either experience it today or, or you have in the past. However, let's consider this noontime routine from Ruth's perspective. Remember, Ruth is a foreigner. She is a stranger, an alien from a country that is at constant war with Israel. Moab, as you recall, was a very wicked country. And at this time, Elgon is the king. He's the, he was the, the fat king that Ehud, the left-handed assassin, kills later after these events. But this is a man who continually is, is raiding them of their food, and hence this famine and coming out of it. They're trying to hide their food from him at this time. But this is where she comes from, and people know her story. She's a stranger with no family or friends in the fields. All she has is Naomi. She's a widow. Her husband is dead. She's a poor widow. She's left to beg for scraps what is left behind. And make no mistake, you and I would know this type of thing, right? If you were to drive up and down Tustin, the malls, you can tell those that are living day by day that are out begging, right? Uh, when you go out to lunch today, if you go through a drive-through, you will see several of them that just stand at the at the uh, the corner waiting for you to come through the drive-through so you can throw them some change. They're noticeable. It would have been very noticeable during that time who the poor people were that were walking under behind everyone, picking up just scraps of food, barley, wheat, corn, whatever it might have been. They would tell very quickly who they are. They would no notice who, well, these are not hired workers. They are not of us. This is what's going on here in this scene. Simply, she's just all alone. Stranger, she just walks in a field. You might remember how you felt on the first few days at work, or maybe school when lunchtime came, or the new student walking into the lunchroom for the first time. It's the stuff of movies and TV series, right? Kid with a tray, where are they going to set, right? But every time they go to a table, what does a kid do? Covers it up so they can't sit down. This is why what's going on with Ruth. It's lunchtime, but she probably didn't even bring a lunch. What, what would she have made lunch with? She had no money. She had no food. That's why she's out in the, the crowd. So lunchtime comes, whether it's a, a horn, some type of thing that announces it. She's there just kind of left, not even holding a bag. Probably just going to find a small place to go. The barley she's picking up is not edible yet. 
You know, it's not like it's bread. It's not like it's, it's kernels that she can make and, and maybe make a soup or something. So she's just kind of left on her own. Maybe understanding these emotions, you know, these are the fear, the trepidations, the shyness, the uncertainty and security that comes with what we're seeing here would all drive her to be alone and to seek solace in her own self. Maybe understanding these emotions as a child of mixed parentage, speaking of Boaz. Remember, Boaz's father was a Hebrew, but his mother was Rahab, a foreigner, an alien, a prostitute, owner of either a brothel or a tavern or one of both. But now she's married to to Boaz's father. Boaz, once again, himself, though, is a Worthy man. And maybe understanding her thing and her emotions, he demonstrates kindness through generous hospitality. Boaz is not only kind towards his employees and towards Ruth, as we saw earlier last week in the scene, but as lunchtime comes, he probably notices her kind of walking off. She doesn't even belong with the other people that are out there that have been uh, working the same way as she has. They're not even going to accept her. But look what he does. Not only does he sit with his employees and eats with them as well, but we're also going to see five surprising actions that Boaz takes at this lunchtime meal. First, going back, he invites her to sit and eat with him and his employees. Ruth, Ruth come over here. Sit. No. Come on. Come on. I know, come, no, come on. Come sit. Sit here. And you can imagine the employees looking around saying, what in the world's going on here? Who is this? They know her story. It might have been even a scandal in the town. Remember, Noemi, Noemi who, whose word means pleasant, said, don't call me that. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I'm bitter in my heart. I'm bitter in my soul. I'm bitter at God. Ruth, I couldn't imagine what she felt as Boaz is calling her now. Hey, hey, Ruth. And she's like, he calls her to sit down. He then invites her to share their food. She probably had none of her own. He says, I, you don't have anything lunch? Here, eat of this. He invites her to dip into their condiments as with the bread to make it more pleasant. You can imagine bread at that time was not the pleasant bread that we have here. It would be coarse and harsh. They would use different types of uh, spices and stuff to dip in to just to make the bread palpable, to be able to swallow. He says, here, take some of mine. Here, here's some of this. He invites her to eat some of the roasted grain, which is a, a staple diet. He says, here, have one of these. Maybe giving him of his own pile, his own food lunch. That doesn't make sense, food lunch, his own lunch. But then fifthly, he gives her enough food to satisfy her appetite and with enough for leftovers, as we'll see later. In verse 15... We read the third exchange between Boaz and his field manager. So lunch is done. Boaz shows some surprising hospitality by including her in the group, which he had no reason to do. He was legitimate. He would have been fine not to do that. But then we see that Boaz goes more as he then calls his field manager to gives him more instructions about Ruth. So with it, verse 15. And when she rose to glean, speaking up after lunch, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves. 
So now instead of walking behind, she's now able to grab what they have already picked. And he says, do not reproach her. Also, pull out some of the bundles for her that you've already collected and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. That reproach and rebuke are two words that we're going to look at here in a moment. He's instructing them to not only allow her to glean behind them, as she had asked earlier, may I come behind you? Remember, that was last week. But he says now they're to pull out some stalks that have already been cut and put in the wagon. He says, pull some of those out and drop them. It's like, oops, what did I do? Oh, we can't get that. Leave that for her. He also instructs them not to embarrass, to shame, or humiliate, or insult her due to her, her low status. She's a foreigner. She's a stranger. She's a widow. She's poor. She's an interloper. All of a sudden, this woman is not only just walking behind them, but now they have to do some work to help her do that. That reproach and that rebuke is say, don't humiliate her. Don't shame her. Don't look down on her. As James says, show no partiality. As we were looking here with the kids of a stranger, treat them differently. See, we live in a world in which we do that. If they're not part of us, then we're going to treat them differently. We see it each and every day. We're all guilty of it. The story then picks up with Ruth returning home and giving a report of her day as we go on in verse 17. So we see all these wonderful things. Boaz is being very generous. He's, he's using his hospitality. He's, he's providing, protecting. She now returns home. It's near the end of the day. And she gives a report to Naomi. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field till evening. Now remember, she went early in the morning. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epath of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Remember that from the earlier passage. Got some leftovers. In verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, what did you glean, or where did you glean today? And where have you worked? This was surprising to her what she's bringing home. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She doesn't know who it is yet. Man, bless that man. What a, what a generous man. What a kind man. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. A man of strength. A brave man. A worthy man. Ruth reports her day and success at obtaining enough food for her and Naomi. And not only did Boaz provide a helping hand, but Ruth also is a hard worker and provides over five gallons of grain. That's what an epath is about in our, in our, in our conversion. After picking up the barley, she had to beat it out with a stick after spending all day in the hot sun. I just wanted to give you an example of how you do this. And so they would take the, the barley there and they would put it on a tarp or, or some type of blanket or something in those days. And they would be there in the sheaves. And then you would take it and you would have to beat the top of it to separate all the, the, the uh, barley, the, the seeds and things like that from the chaff. And so you would do that and then eventually you would then have that which you can then take and boil or or grind down into flour and things of that nature. Ruth is a hard worker. Starts early in the morning, works all day, and then before she goes home, she has to still do all of that before she comes home 
only to get up and try to do it again. Aren't we, aren't we spoiled? You know, if you and I want bread, you know, we, we go and we just buy it. It's already there. We, we don't have to do anything to get it. Five gallons worth of food. Here we see the generosity and the goodness and the kindness of God that's going through Boaz. Now, as we continue on in verse 20, Naomi responds with joy to their good fortune. And this is an important passage because something uh, is, is definitely happening here with Naomi. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides all of this, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So not only did he give her lunch and give her permission and then make it easier for her to glean and to grab food, but he also says, my men are going to be sticking around here and they are going to protect you. Verse 22, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young man lest in another field you be assaulted. Again, we see a day and age when everyone did what was right his own eyes, where a woman would not be safe in the fields of another man. Notice, though, as we read that passage, Naomi's change of mood, a change of heart. Here, all of a sudden, you see excitement, blessing, and hope, where before all we saw were bitterness, complaining, and problems, and focusing just on her suffering. She pronounces two blessings, one to the man who was kind to Ruth, and as you notice, there's a second one to Yahweh for providing and protecting Ruth, and by extension, herself. The narrator closes this scene in verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Not only do we see a notice, a change in, in, in Naomi's mind and heart, but we see something else happening with just that one verse. Ruth accepts Boaz's offer and the wise advice of Naomi, and she stays in the field of Boaz, working until the end of the barley, but also the, the author notes, and then the wheat harvest which is about six to seven weeks. So she had employment from about April to June. We also observe that now they had shelter, food, and companionship. Speaking of Ruth and Naomi, they were no longer alone. They were no longer empty, as Naomi had said earlier in chapter one. We also observe that they, uh, they were provided with a home, food, they settled into a routine of life and had enough food for themselves and maybe to sell as is selling some of the excess wheat or barley or to bake it and to make a little bit of money on the side. Now, those are just some of the observations, but there's three things I believe that we can learn from this passage. First, if you're taking notes, is the goodness of Boaz. The goodness of Boaz as he demonstrated it through hospitality. 
Boaz went above and beyond the requirements of the law. Remember, the requirements of the law was not to touch the outside, or if he dropped any, just don't go back and pick him up, leave him for the poor. But Boaz, as you're reading this, is going above and beyond that which was required by the law. Now, most of us, we only do that which is required, right? It's like there used to be a phrase, it's good enough for government work, it's good enough for church work. You know, we, we just want to get that bare minimum. Some of us live our lives that way. But as Christians, we shouldn't. In this case, Boaz, as a worthy man, is going above and beyond. He's making sure that this, this young lady and Naomi have provision and protection. He wants to take care of them. Daniel Block remarks, as you look here on the monitor, he says, Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion and acceptance. Look at it once again. Boaz took an ordinary occasion and transformed it into a glorious demonstration of compassion and acceptance. What was the ordinary occasion? Just a poor woman coming out for food. I mean, every day in his field, there were probably poor people that were in the field, and he just didn't harass them. But he also did not invite them to lunch. He didn't then say, hey, here's some more sheaves. Give her extra. Make sure she's taken care of. Now, boy, as a worthy man, probably treated all those in his field well, but in this case, we're seeing something much more. And what's interesting is we're looking at that it took an ordinary occasion transport. Think back to Rosaria. What is it? What did she say? Like radical, ordinary hospitality? We're doing something above and beyond. We're demonstrating goodness and kindness towards others, even when they are not like us. His hospitality towards Ruth is a great example of, of Hesed, as we spoke about several weeks ago. Hesed is God's wonderful kindness. That word, our, our word kindness cannot encapsulate all that it means, but it, it's talking about God's faithful goodness to his covenant-keeping people. There was nothing that compelled him to invite Ruth into the inner circle, the employees, and treat her as one of his employees. At this point in the story, there is no picture or hint of remote romantic overtures. There's no love at first sight or seeking to gain her favor. Boaz is just being Boaz, a worthy man taking care of the vulnerable. So that's the first thing we see once again is the goodness of Boaz. Secondly, is that Boaz's goodness towards Ruth this is important, begins to melt the hardness of Naomi's heart and sweeten the bitterness she carries. In other words, someone else's goodness and kindness begins to move her heart not only to consider her place, but also consider what God actually has done for her. Look again at Naomi's reaction. It's here on the monitor to Ruth's good fortune. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. That was the first part. She says, good, there is finally someone who has noticed our plight, who has helped us. But this is so so much important. May he be blessed by the Lord. That's his personal name, Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Who is she speaking of? Herself and her husbands and sons who had died. In other words, she thought coming back home to Bethlehem that God had forsaken her. 
that God had left her because of their disobedience in moving to Moab in the first place. Are there not times that you have felt that? You know that you have not followed God's will and you feel that whatever is happening in your life is God punishing you? And so we become bitter. We become angry. We become complaining against that which we have. Remember, our grumbling and complaining about not having a nice enough house or a car or a job or a relationship or our marriage is truly complaining about God and his goodness towards us. But as you see here, there is a turning in her heart. It doesn't give us much more than that, but it just gives us, there is a turning in her heart. She finally recognizes that God has not abandoned her. That there is still hope. With a roof over her head, enough barley to eat and sell and job security and protection for Ruth, Naomi Naomi begins to give praise to God. Now that her belly is full, she acknowledges the goodness of God. Unfortunately, that's usually the case with many of us. We wait until things are good. Then we will say good is God is good. As you may recall, it's 180 degrees where she was just from a few days earlier when she entered the city. Then she was defeated and bitter in spirit. Now her spirits are revived and she has hope as she acknowledges, hey, Boaz is my redeemer. When it comes to a deceased husband and son, she realizes maybe there is still hope yet. The third point is not only does Naomi point to the goodness of God in providing and protecting her daughter-in-law, but she also finds hope in realizing that Boaz has potential as a mate for Ruth as she declares, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. With these words, the kinsman redeemer theme is now introduced in a scripture. John MacArthur writes that the great kinsman redeemer theme of Ruth begins here. A close relative could redeem. You'll see here the three things that a kinsman redeemer could do. is a family member that is sold into slavery. The one that would be closest to him in relative as being a relative could come and buy his freedom. Also, they could then buy land that needed to be sold under economic hardship. Remember, uh, uh, Yahweh had given each, each person, each family, a piece of land. Now, they could sell that land for up to seven years or so to make money. If they didn't, if they couldn't farm it, if they couldn't raise sheep on it, maybe for some reason they could sell it or rent it to someone, but then it would have to be given back. So that would be one way they could make money. It was only a relative could come and say, you know what? I'm going to buy this land. I'm going to redeem this land back so it can go back into his family. But also the family name by virtue of a Leverite marriage. Again, we've spoken about this several times over the last several weeks. Ruth's husband, because he is dead, and because she was barren, had no children, is that family line is dying out. So someone else, another family member, would, would, would inherit all that land. His name would be blotted out, as there would be no sons to carry on in the name of Elimelech. But a redeemer could marry that widow, and then that first male child would then be able to inherit from the dead father. In this case, remember, at this point, Naomi says, Everything, every, all my sons are dead, my husband is dead, I can't have any more children. 
Ruth is, Ruth is gonna, if Ruth marries anyone, we're just gone. But a redeemer could change all those fortunes. Now, this earthly custom pictures the reality of God, the Redeemer, who's actually doing a greater work by reclaiming those who need to be spiritually redeemed out of slavery or sin. So Boaz, the kinsman Redeemer, is something that we're going to see as we continue on in this chapter, or in the next two chapters, but it's also that points to Christ. Remember, Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz pictures Christ, who is a redeemer, or as our brother, redeems those who, as we see here, were slaves to sin. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He is our brother. He also can have help us lost all the earthly possessions and privileges in the fall. He brings back the creation and those that have been alienated from sin, by sin from God. This is the work that Christ can do for us. In other words, Boaz, John MacArthur writes, stands in the direct line of Christ. This turn of events marks the point where Naomi's human emptiness begins to be refilled by the Lord. Her night of earthly doubt has been broken by the dawning of a new hope. Now, this passage gives us great hope as we reflect not only the goodness of Boaz, but as you and I come and say, well, how does this apply to our lives? How do we think of this? But what we see is also gives us time to reflect on the goodness of God. Wayne Grumman notes this, and I want to get you this here as we go on. I believe we have it here. It's on the goodness of God. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. In other words, when you and I think of what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, God is the final standard of that. But in addition to that, all that God does, or all that God is and does, is worthy of approval. So when you and I think of God's goodness, we can say God's goodness applies to so many areas of our lives. It it applies to the family that he gives us, and to the work he gives us, to, to, to the intellect that we have, the talents and gifts. But God's goodness is not only getting shown there and not only worthy of his approval, but also if God gives us cancer. If God takes a child. If we lose a job. God is still good and worthy of our approval. Naomi hasn't learned that. She is learning that now. But only because now her belly is full. Unfortunately, you and I only think God is good when our bellies are full, when things are okay. My question is, do you approve of God even when things are dark and dank, when life seems hopeless? The psalmist sings, as you see here in Scripture, on the monitor, says it in Scripture, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. We sung that earlier. I pray that you're not only singing a song because it's on the board, but you, but you believe it. You approve of God's goodness. He goes on to say, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. In other words, it's worth repeating. We need to understand that. Psalms 38, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
She recognizes that Boaz is good, so they're going to take refuge in him because he's given provision and protection. But the real picture, one that we see, is God, is Yahweh. Naomi has finally come to that conclusion. But you and I need to recognize that God is good all the time, right? All the time God is good. Would you join with me in just saying it? I know it's a simple one. I think we have it there. Just say it with me. Ready? God is good all the time. And then all the time, all the time God is good. Let's get it once again. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. We as Christians need to grab a hold of that simple truth. I know it's a, it's a bumper sticker, right? It's a model, but it's a model that, that mirrors scriptural, biblical truth. You and I need to get a hold of that. God is good in the greatness and the wonderful things of it, but also in those times of famine and drought. Now, Jesus declared, I would agree, that no one is good except God alone. However, the goodness of God is also one of the communicable traits of God. I know that's a big word, and I just, I just saw the glassy eye. Let me share it with you. There are things in which we think of the attributes of God. God is kind. God is loving, right? God is merciful. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he's everywhere at the same time. So there are communicable traits of God in which he allows us and gives those to us as well. And there's some in which he remains to himself. In other words, I'm not all powerful. I am not all knowing. I know that's a surprise to you. Uh, I am, my, my children taught me that one very quickly. And I'm not, I can't be everywhere at once. However, God says, Rob, you can be good. You can be kind. You can be loving. Even those that do not know Christ can have a measure of good, of kindness, of tenderheartedness, and forgiving. These are things that God has called us to do. And Boaz is a perfect example of one who does good. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 6 with me. Luke chapter 6. The Holy Spirit commands the children of God... In Galatians 6.10, he says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's the verse that we shared with the children earlier. And especially to those of the house of the faith. So in that we are to do good as the opportunity arises, especially to those in the household of faith, but to everyone we are to do good. It should be a no-brainer that as children of God, we should be quick to take care of each other. James, the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor at the church of, of Jerusalem, warns in his gospel that if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In other words, you just give them a blessing without giving them the things needed for the body. He says, what good is that? But the Holy Spirit goes even much further in Luke chapter 6. six. Do you have that? Luke chapter 6. Look at verse 27. Now this is Jesus. He's telling them to be good. But I say to you here, who hear, to those of you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Look the verse down to verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners do the same. 
Verse 34, and if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit? Even sinners do so. But look at verse 35. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You and I are called to be Boaz in demonstrating and displaying the goodness of God that's been given to us. Boaz was a worthy man in a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Today we live in a society that is very much the same. Not much is different. And last week I called our men to be old Boaz and our women to be like Ruth. We need worthy men and women that are kind, full of mercy, ready to give grace and prepared to do good. Instead of focusing on what we are getting or on what we are not getting, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. And let me just, again, love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we say that phrase, it rolls off the tongue, right? We, we, we say it to everyone. But what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means that you should, uh, love your neighbor means that you should look for their benefit, their goodness, their help as much as you do your own. That's what it means. So, Mo, so maybe it's Boaz that just invites a stranger in and makes them feel comfortable. Maybe it's giving them some roasted grain. Maybe it's inviting them to, to have what you have left over. But look at Boaz. He only not just gives her what she needs, but he gives her much more than she needs. He, he doesn't send her home with just what she's worked for, but he gives her so much more. This is what God has called us to do, even to those who are hostile to us. That may be, it may be your spouse, your children, your in-laws. How tough that's going to be, right? This is what God has called us to do. God is good. And he calls us to do good to others. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, let me give you the motivation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God, again in bold, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before he said, in the beginning, let there be, he created, he chose us, and he created things and said, this is the things that Landon's going to do, that Randy's going to do. Uh, these are the things that, 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 that Rick is going to do. These are the things that, that I've created and prepared for him. I put everything together. Now you need to do good. The opportunity is coming. Keep your minds open, your eyes open, so that you may see when that opportunity comes. You and I are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. This is one of the ways in which God works to draw men and women to himself. Just as we saw that the goodness of Boaz began to change the heart of Naomi, our goodness, our kindness towards others may be the very tool, the very thing that God uses to turn their hearts and see the goodness of God. 
Jesus taught his disciples, let your light shine before others so that, may, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. Our good works through hospitality, kindness, and mercy also, though, not only serves as a way to glorify God and to point people to Christ, but it also serves as a judgment to those who reject Christ. As Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh, but to keep your conduct among the Gentiles Honorable, so when they see your good deeds and glory, that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. What is that talking about? It says there are some, when you do good works, they're going to slap the hand, right? They're going to bite, what's that? Bite the hand that feeds them, is that the phrase? There are going to people, when you're going to try to do good works, they're not going to uh, like it. They're going to cancel you. They're going to, they're going to accuse you, bite back against you. However, there will be a day when they stand before God that they will have to give account. Yes, what he did was righteous. What he did was good. What he did was loving. So it stands as a way to draw people to God, but it also stands for their judgment. So as we come close to finishing, how do we apply this to our lives? I want to exhort you this morning to take up this mantle of exhibiting the goodness of God. Like Boaz, one way we can do this is through hospitality. Several years ago, we made hospitality an emphasis of our ministry, and it's important for us to consider it once again. This is a scriptural command, hospitality is, by the way. And it's a discipline, just as reading, studying, and memorizing God's word, praying, and giving. It's a spiritual discipline that we need to develop. It's a skill that we should uh, inhabit. The Holy Spirit informs us in Romans 12, looking here on the monitor. He says here, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is what? Good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. All that God has given you, your home, your job, your salary, your, 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 your personality, has all been given to you so that you may generously give to others. Now, hospitality might be bringing someone into your home. It might be sharing your lunch with them during, during the workday. It might be giving them a good word. It might be helping them through a, a difficult time. Hospitality takes all sorts of, of ways of, 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 of displaying itself, but it's being kind and loving towards others, meeting their needs with an intention to draw them in into your circle so that you can share with them Jesus Christ, who is the one that is good. So let us be worthy men and women that freely offer mercy, grace, kindness, and friendliness through hospitality so that others may see the goodness of our God. As James reminds us, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I'd like to end with this moment, because you might be feeling here, Rob, I believe in that. I, I would like to do that. But right now, I don't feel the goodness 
of God. I don't see it in my life. You may say, call me Mara, for my heart is bitter. I feel empty. I'm not sure God has been showing me any goodness or kindness. I want to share with you an old hymn. It says, when upon a life's billows you are tempted, tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. He says, Every, are you every burden with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? He goes on to write, count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you'll be singing as the days go by. You may be saying, there ain't no way I'm singing, no way I'm doing a tap dance. You don't know my circumstance. You don't know the consequences I'm facing. You don't know my life. But let me share with you, God's goodness is there, even in famine and drought. If you want to become a Mara to a Naomi, count your blessings. See what God is doing in your life. And even if your lunch is small, then share with others, for God will bless you even more. Amen? Why? Because God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. There head bowed and everybody closed. I'm going to ask Randy to come before we do communion. And he's just going to pray for us. But I want you to take a moment to pause and consider this passage and the words and the goodness of God. I'm going to ask you to pray as he prays along. Would you respond to the Holy Spirit? Maybe he's calling you to trust him more. Maybe he's convicting you of, of not having a, a kind or, or a grateful heart. Maybe you are a Naomi at this moment. Or maybe you're a Ruth and you're just looking for kindness. I pray that God will show you the Boaz and you see the goodness of God. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.